From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters here legalized recreational cannabis a decade ago, to some extent putting the cart before the horse. Because the cannabis legalization and use cart is way before the research horse. (laughs) And so use is expanding. Um, I mentioned older adults. Older adults right now are the fastest growing demographic of cannabis users, but we know almost nothing. Today, what have we learned? will also shatter some long-standing myths. What people market as an indica can have things that look a lot like sativas. Things that look like sativas or are marketed as sativas can have things that look nothing like other kinds of sativas. And so, you know, there's an element of truth in advertising here that if you go out and buy red wine and you crack it open and it comes out as, you know, a white wine, you'd be very upset. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Voters legalized recreational marijuana in this state 10 years ago, changing the economy and society here forever. I feel vindicated. I feel enthused. I feel ecstatic when I think about all the things that we can now start to break down walls on, on people going to jail, all the social issues that are surrounding this. I I mean, I'm over the top. Over the top. Cannabis entrepreneur Wanda James, just after the vote in 2012. In the decade since, what have we learned about this drug and how people use it, its health effects? We'll spend the next little while with two researchers who've answered those questions, only to find there are yet more questions to answer. Angela Bryan is professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder, and Brian Keegan is assistant professor of information science, also at CU. Thanks to you both for being with us. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. In the lead up to legalization, one fear was that there would be a profusion of drivers under the influence. Uh, Brian, what have we seen? So between 2012 and 2019, uh, marijuana arrests decreased from 13,000 to 4,000. So that's just possession of marijuana. But looking at DUI numbers, those numbers have also stayed relatively constant. And so I think that a lot of the worries that many people had that this would sort of cause an explosion in sort of DUIs driving under the influence has not been borne out. It's certainly the case that it hasn't gone down, but it hasn't doubled or tripled or something like that. Is it possible, though, that in an environment where there is legalization, uh, law enforcement is simply less motivated to pursue? I mean, I, I would believe, would want to believe that law enforcement and public safety officials would want to sort of be cracking down on all kinds of impairment on the roads. Certainly in the last 10 years, we've had lots of people move to Colorado. We've got more drivers. We've got more roads and things like that. And so despite that growth, I don't think we've seen a kind of a similar kind of growth in the number of these kinds of infractions or it hasn't exploded in a massive way. The other thing it might be helpful to point out is that we've also had a lot of cannabis tourism, right? Because for a long time, Colorado was the only sort of island of legalization and the states around us had not legalized. So you would expect that those folks, too, who are coming specifically to purchase cannabis might have driven up those rates of DUI. So Mm. the fact that we haven't seen that, I think, is another piece of evidence that things probably haven't gotten worse. They haven't gotten any better, but they haven't gotten worse as a result of legalization. I also think that in this same time, 
we have seen the rise really of another sort of drug, and that is abuse of opioids, which in many ways was far more nefarious, harmful to the state than anything cannabis might have brought on. Absolutely the case. The rise in particularly adolescents getting a hold of things like fentanyl and other opiates um, have deadly consequences. And this is in a context where after legalization, the expected, you know, skyrocketing of adolescent use of cannabis just didn't happen. And so if we try to balance sort of the harms of the two substances, it's pretty clear that opiates are a lot more harmful and a lot more harmful in particular to adolescents who maybe don't know as much about what they're doing when they get a hold of these really deadly substances. You know, that reminds me, too, of the comparisons I've often heard between cannabis and alcohol, with the latter really causing more devastation in lives than cannabis. Can we stand by a statement like that? Yes. um, There's no doubt that alcohol is both more addictive than cannabis and more deadly than cannabis. So in terms of public health consequences, the harms from alcohol far outweigh the harms from cannabis, which makes it even a little more incredulous that cannabis is a Schedule One substance and alcohol is just a legally regulated thing that probably all of us go home at the end of the day and, and have. So, mm-hmm. so it's interesting because I think there's no doubt that alcohol causes far more harm. And to say that it's Schedule One is to place it alongside some very heavy drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So heroin is also a Schedule One substance. What you speak to there, Angela, is the early concern that legalization of cannabis, recreational especially, would lead to the use, abuse by minors. I remember, for instance, uh, then-Governor John Hickenlooper expressing that concern in particular. That has not been borne out, given how highly regulated the industry is, or what? It's a great question as to why. I don't think we know the answer about why. But what we do know is that in this state, as in other states that have legalized, we haven't seen a dramatic increase um, in adolescent use of cannabis. Following up on that, Colorado does run a Healthy Kids uh, survey. And so they've been collecting data since 2011 or 2013 on different kinds of questions. And so when they ask questions about uh, marijuana use by young people, and it's like those numbers uh, have been relatively constant since 2013 before legalization. So if something like 33% of high school students have used marijuana in the last 30 days in 2013, that number only rose to 37.5% of high school students used marijuana in the last 30 days in 2021. So again, this is that number has increased 33% to 37% is definitely an increase, but we're not, again, seeing those kinds of dramatic explosion of use among young people that many people were warning against. Yet another concern, Brian, was diversion. Recreational cannabis making its way into the illicit market, uh, to other states. How, How did Colorado try to address that potential? So Colorado really pioneered a model that every state has followed uh, in terms of legalizing its cannabis markets. And so when we talk about cannabis legalization in Colorado, we also have to talk about this enormous surveillance architecture that exists within the cannabis industry that many people don't know about. So this surveillance architecture is called the metric system. It's not kilograms and meters, but it's (laughs) the marijuana enforcement regulation tracking and control system. 
And so the logic behind the system was that if we can keep track of every single gram of product from the moment it flowers out of the soil up to like the final sale to the customer and every single sort of step that happens in between of the plant growing and flowering and being trimmed and being dried and turning into edibles and, and sort of every single possible step that can be taken, all that is logged and tracked in a massive central state-controlled database. And so everyone who participates in the cannabis markets in Colorado at the end of every single business day uh, is required to submit all of their transaction data, all of their supply chain data to the central government database. And I think that surprises a lot of people that one, the system kind of exists, and two, that this model of regulating the cannabis industry by relying on this very data-intensive surveillance of the industry is a model that every other legalizing state has also adopted. These kinds of technologies did not exist, say, in 2004 or 1994. And so the sort of the possibility of having this technology for tracking all this data about cannabis moving through the supply chain is really a relatively recent kind of innovation. And so it's really hard to tell the story about cannabis legalization without telling the story about this seed-to-sale tracking and surveillance system. Seed-to-sale tracking. And then what identifies an individual plant? Right. So the logic of the how we secure these supply chains is one that as long as we have these barcodes that track these plants from the moment they sprout to like the final sale uh, to the customer and everything that happens in between, that every single transformation sort of has a barcode attached to it. If you walk into a dispensary, they like put a metric barcode on this as well. And so everything sort of exists within this database through these barcodes. There's nothing specific to the genetics or sort of the chemical composition of the plant that says that this is legal or, or not legal or anything like that. And for that reason, I think all the hopes around this system being effective at preventing diversion, there's still diversion still happens within these marketplaces. Uh, there's still a very active sort of illicit marketplace within Colorado and other kinds of legal states. How is that possible given the system you described? I guess people are wily. Yeah, people are wily. Uh, these kinds of socio-technical systems have all kinds of loopholes. You know, you can say that we're wasting out this much product, but like that product might actually just kind of be going out the back door instead. Mm. And so there's ways that either illicitly grown products coming into the market or legally grown products leaving and going into the illicit market are both possibilities with the kinds of loopholes that are possible with these kinds of systems. I think the other thing that this system doesn't track is the fact that it's also legal to grow a certain number of plants. Yourself. So, right. So each of us could grow, I think it was six last time I checked, but um, we can grow a certain number of plants on our own in the backyard. If we have a medical license, we can grow even more. And so obviously those plants are not tracked by mm -hmm. the system um, that Brian described. And so that's another mechanism by which there could be some filtering into the illicit market. Well, we will dive into what we know, what we are learning about cannabis and health after a break. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are joined by Angela Bryan, professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder, and Brian Keegan, assistant professor of information science, also at CU Boulder, speaking as Colorado marks 10 years since the legalization of recreational cannabis. This is CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. That so many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't. 
live with the terror that springs in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. Ten years have come and gone so fast. In 2012, Colorado voters made recreational marijuana legal here. There is a lot we've learned and much, much more we still don't know. Let's return to my conversation with two cannabis researchers, both from CU Boulder, Professors Angela Bryan and Brian Keegan. To direct health effects, Angela, tell me about what you've learned when it comes to THC, CBD, and specifically pain. Sure. So a lot of our research revolves around trying to understand how different cannabinoids impact the brain and the body from both a harm and a benefit perspective. And and maybe we should say here that our bodies have an endocannabinoid system. We are actually built in a way to receive this stuff, right? Absolutely. So the body has two specific kind of cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2 receptors. They are throughout the periphery, but they're concentrated in sort of the central nervous system, the Hmm. brain and, and other parts of the CNS. So yes, we're constructed to receive these cannabinoids, um, these what we call exogenous cannabinoids. We also have endogenous cannabinoids that circulate around our bodies. And so these exogenous and endogenous cannabinoids um, collaborate together to cause the effects that we see. Um, What do those words mean, endogenous? So endogenous are cannabinoids that are made inside the body. That our body is making. Exactly. Our body makes marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. Sort of. Yes, I understand. That's a layman's interpretation. Yes, yes. And then there's anything we introduce. Right. And then exogenous cannabinoids are if we were to um, ingest a cannabis edible, that would be exogenous cannabinoids. Uh coming into the body. Okay. That was very helpful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And so these cannabinoids that we smoke or vape or eat are a combination of a lot of cannabinoids and terpenes and and various other chemicals. The two major ones, though, are the ones that people are probably familiar with, THC and CBD cannabidiol. Um, THC is the component that has psychoactive effects that gives people the high, while CBD doesn't have psychoactive effects and doesn't produce that high feeling. And they, Um, they must work differently with pain? They do. They do. Um, What we do know is that it seems that cannabis can have positive effects on pain, so it can make pain um, decrease over time. There seems to be some evidence that the combination of THC and CBD might be uh, most effective for pain reduction. CBD has anti-inflammatory properties. We know that pain causes inflammation. That's part of what the pain process looks like. So it's probably not terribly surprising that CBD is implicated in decreasing pain. But on the other hand, THC does have that psychoactive effect. And so if you think about other pain medications, think about opiates. Opiates also have psychoactive effects. So it's probably not terribly surprising that some combination of THC and CBD seem to be the most effective for pain reduction. We don't have specifics on exact doses or preparations that might be the most helpful. Mm. But that's what we've learned so far is that probably some combination of THC and CBD is the most effective. But as you describe it, it's fascinating because there are so many variables you have to pull apart to understand yes. what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And yeah. then you you think about all of the products available on the market. Right. Each one of those could be their own study and test, right? Yes. 
Yes, it's so complicated. The plant genetics are just, <laughs> yeah, we're only beginning to scratch the surface of how complicated it is. And and as I said, we're mainly testing THC and CBD, but there are also a range of minor cannabinoids and terpenes and other compounds. What's a terpene? Um, so it's another compound in cannabis. It's a, another chemical. Terpenes are actually in a lot of things and a lot of plants and actually fruits and, and vegetables. They are the things that give cannabis their their smell often. So if you go to a dispensary and they say, you know, this one smells like Girl Scout cookies, that's the terpenes that are causing that smell. So we don't actually have a good handle on what those terpenes do biologically. I know that the um, having spoken to people in the cannabis industry, they're super interested in understanding what the terpenes do biologically, mm-hmm. but we just don't know at this point. Just quickly, has Big Pharma caught on to this? So there are some FDA-approved medications, so Sativex, um, Epidiolex, Nabiximols, that are made by Big Pharma uh-huh. um, and are derived from the cannabis plant, which, again, makes it a little silly that it's a Schedule One substance that has no medical benefit when Big Pharma's making money from making it into a medicine. But yeah, there is certainly interest from Big Pharma in trying to figure out how to better um, monetize these compounds. It's interesting. I talked to the School of Pharmacy at Anschutz. Um, I I gave a talk there and they were asking, you know, what are the implications of all of this cannabis research for us as pharmacists, right? And I honestly don't know, because like I mentioned earlier, you can grow it in your backyard. So you don't actually need a a prescription or or even anybody to tell you to take it. So I'm fascinated by what the future holds in terms of how the medical aspect of cannabis is going to look. Yeah, that's fascinating because no one's growing Tylenol in their backyard. Exactly. Can I ask uh, Dr. Bryant to describe the entourage effect or how would you define the entourage effect? The entourage effect. Right. So the entourage effect is the idea that just pulling, like, for example, just extracting THC out of the plant and giving that to someone won't have the same effect as THC in the context of the whole plant. And the idea is that THC and CBD and the terpenes all work together Mm -hmm. to have their effects. That's an ecosystem. Exactly. And that's what's called the entourage effect. So that's why in my lab, we like to study the products that are used on the legal market because they contain all of those interesting compounds all together. It makes it a whole lot more complicated, and there's some people who think that the entourage effect uh, might not be as big a deal as we think it is. I think the jury is somewhat still out. It seems to me to make sense, given that the plant has been used for thousands of years for many of these same purposes, that there must be something special about um, how the compounds in the plant work together. But again, we're just really at the very cutting edge of understanding that science. When someone shops for cannabis, Brian, they often see products labeled as, you know, containing either sativa or an indica strain. You have used data science to better understand the chemical composition of cannabis products. And what have you found in this kind of soup of ingredients? So there are these, you could call them subspecies of cannabis sativa and cannabis indica, and they, as plants, they have different kinds of stems and and leaves shapes and things like that. But within the marketplace, people have started to attribute different kinds of subjective effects to each of these different kinds of subspecies. And so people might say that an indica is very sort of sedative, like in the couch, very relaxing versus like a sativa is like very stimulating and creative. And so it has these, these two different kinds of effects. In reality, most of the 
products that you're able to buy in Colorado's legal marketplace are all hybrids of these two kinds of subspecies. And so there's nothing that's purely indica. There's nothing that's purely sativa. And so what we did in our study was we were able to find different kinds of chemical compositions that are reported by testing labs uh, for these different kinds of strains. And so Girl Scout cookies might have this composition of, of terpenes and cannabinoids. A. I'm mindful, by the way, of what it is to name a drug that is age-restricted Girl Scout cookies. Um, anyway, a little off-putting, but go ahead. Right. And so, but what we found is when you look at the chemical composition of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of these different kinds of strains, there's actually very little correspondence to the chemical composition of like what causes you to have these subjective experiences and the actual labels of what's available in the marketplace. And so what people market as an indica can have things that look a lot like sativas. Things that look like sativas or are marketed as sativas can have things that look nothing like other kinds of sativas. And so, you know, there's an element of truth in advertising here that if you go out and buy red wine and you crack it open and it comes out as, you know, a white wine, you'd be very upset. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the legal marketplace, we've had this kind of experience that like there is no regulations governing what you can call something. There's no sort of trademark protection or anything, any other kind of intellectual property that says when you buy something that says X, that X will always have this kind of consistent chemical compound composition. Uh, and I so hear I think you saying caveat emptor here, <laughs> buyer beware. Definitely. And so I think for a long time, there's been really just a focus on these top line kinds of cannabinoids. Like people really only were sensitive to like buying based on THC or CBD composition. Uh, but as Dr. Bryant mentioned that, I think that this realization that many of these other kinds of chemical compounds play a really important part in like why people have different kinds of experiences consuming different kinds of products is pushing the industry and the consumers to like demand and sort of produce more information about what they are consuming. And so like reporting out more of the kinds of terpenes that are present in different kinds of products. And I think that's good for the end user uh, because like having more information, I think makes them able to make better kinds of decisions. And this plant also has, you know, medical properties. We still license and regulate it as, as a medical treatment as well. And so you would expect that the Tylenol you buy at a Walgreens is the same as the Tylenol that you buy at yes. a CVS. But like yeah. in reality, like the sort of the Girl Scout cookies or the Gorilla Glue or what have you, uh, the Charlotte's Web that you buy at one kind of place might be very different in terms of its chemical composition than the same labeled product that you buy in a different place. It strikes me then as researchers, I'm reminded actually of the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, and how much the federal government followed up with us to say, what are you experiencing? Share your side effects. Um, that the more information the consumer can give back to the industry about what they're experiencing, the better we understand things. Is that true? Well, here's the rub, right? So if I walk into the dispensary and I'm told by the um, person at the dispensary that this is an indica, this is going to be relaxing, this is going to you know, help you to sleep, whatever it is. The problem is that at that point, no matter what I'm actually handed, I have expectancies about what that product's going to do to uh. me. And we know from decades and decades of research that our expectancies about medications are are actually part of how they work. And that goes for everything from Advil to opiates to cannabis. And this is why the fact that we can't do the kinds of 
carefully controlled studies that we'd like to do is really problematic because what I'd love to do is be able to take, um, you know, a, a mostly pure indica and a mostly pure sativa and not tell you which one I'm giving you and have you try it and tell me what you experience because that's really the only way to learn whether these two products have any differential effects on people. And what prevents you from doing that? Let's be explicit. Sure. So what prevents me from doing that is the fact that it's a Schedule One drug. And so the only way I could do that kind of study would be to use the cannabis that's grown by the National Institute on Drug Abuse um, through the National Institutes of Health. Is that in Mississippi still? There's, there are a couple of more farms that are coming online. But yes, the original one was Mississippi. Um, that's the, been described to me as kind of trash marijuana. Oh, it's awful. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, back in... 2007, I think, we did a study using that product and people were throwing up in the lab because it was really bad quality. It's improved since then. Don't oh. get me wrong. And they're, I know that they are trying to expand the repertoire of the things that they're making available. But for example, we're really concerned about the impact of high potency concentrated cannabis that's like 90% THC. We can't study that with the federal, federal products because it doesn't exist. So the problem is that in order to do the study I described, I would have to use that um, cannabis, but they don't make the products that I would need to use to test. Mm -hmm. So it's this catch-22 that I can't do the studies with the legal products on the legal market products, but I can't use the products from the federal government because they don't reflect what's in the marketplace. I mean, one thing I would add, too, is that a lot of the framing that exists at the federal level for funding is through this framing of addiction and harm and things like that. So like Dr. Bright just said, like the National Institutes for Drug Abuse is like the, one of the primary mm -hmm. avenues that the federal government funds this research. But again, talk about the, an expectancy, mm -hmm. or, you know, a framing. Exactly. And so, you know, to have other parts of the NIH or to have the National Science Foundation or to have like the FDA to provide funding at a federal level, it would be an immense boon to sort of be able to do the kinds of really important clinical trial work to like understand like how different kinds of chemical compositions affect people and how it can be used to different kinds of treatments. None of that research is possible until cannabis comes off the federal schedule one. So uh, it's simply the case that at a state level, we don't have the kinds of resources or overheads to sort of provide the funding to do a lot of this research that's really only going to be able to be done at a federal level. To be fair, though, the landscape is changing slowly. So, for example, um, I have funding from the National Institute on Aging to look at cannabis use in older adults for things like pain and anxiety and sleep. Uh, my colleague, Cinnamon Bidwell, has the the project you mentioned on pain earlier is funded through NCCIH, which is the National Institute on Complementary Medicine, essentially. Um, so we're beginning to see some movement from other institutes. Um, the National Cancer Institute is very interested in the use of cannabis for palliative care in cancer contexts. So I think it's slowly happening. But like Brian said, until, we, until it comes off the schedule, we're not going to be able to do the kind of carefully controlled work we'd like to do. Hearing you both talk, the word that comes to mind is stunted, that this is an area of science, an area of research, despite the fact that this is an ancient plant, where our understanding of it, uh, very much in this country, is stunted. Do you think that's true? Oftentimes when we give talks, especially public talks, we have a slide that has the cart before the horse because the cannabis legalization and use cart is way before the research horse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so use is expanding. Um, I mentioned older adults. Older adults right now are the fastest growing demographic of cannabis users. 
but we know almost nothing about use in that age group, what potential benefits or harms there might be. So we're, we're forever playing catch up from here on out because legalization happened before we could do the good science that needed to be done. All right, the final part of our conversation marking a decade since the legalization of recreational marijuana after a break. When we come back, a dip in Colorado's cannabis market and myths about sedentary potheads shattered. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm here with CPR News and KRCC. Ten years come and gone so fast, I might as well be dreaming. Sunny days have burned to bad across another season. A fortune rises to the sky. Ten years come and gone so fast. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Ten years ago, voters in this state created a new industry, legalizing recreational marijuana here. We are hearing what scientists have learned in the decades since about the drug and how people use it. Let's return to my interview with Angela Bryan, professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. And Brian Keegan is assistant professor of information science also at CU. For the first time since legalization, cannabis sales are markedly down in Colorado. You're right that cannabis sales have declined for the first time year over year uh, in 2021 to 2022. I think that between the combination of just the cannabis tourism, the pandemic, people just staying at home, all of those I definitely contributed to like a really profound growth in the in the market, the revenues that the companies were bringing in, the tax revenues that the state was receiving. And then just in the last year, you've really seen that market slow down from a combination of factors, both that there's just more supply with the same or declining demand is really pushing the prices down, Hmm. making it really hard to be an operator in this market. It's odd. It's like the opposite of everything else going on in the economy, where there's a shortage of everything and everything's expensive. But we're not seeing that there. So, yeah, we're not seeing, I think, the same kinds of inflation that we're seeing, pressures that we're seeing in other parts of the economy necessarily playing out. If anything, there's probably really strong deflationary pressures in the cannabis markets, um, again, with more supply and constant or declining demand. And there's also really a shift in terms of the different kinds of products and ways that people want to consume. I think that some consumers are becoming savvier and they want like all these testing results, and that puts a different kind of price premium to sort of produce products that have all the testing results on them. Other people want live soil or organic. So all those kinds of forces that you might see is sort of driving up the prices at like a Whole Foods compared to a King Supers. Hmm. Those kinds of differentiators are also playing out in the market as well. I think a really profound concern that the industry faces right now is around contaminants. And so in the role of like pesticides and sort of mold. And so Colorado requires you to do testing for like mold and pesticides and these other kinds of contaminants. Um, But unfortunately, we're still operating under a regulatory regime that if you spray a pesticide on an apple to keep the bugs off the apple, you're allowed to spray the same pesticide on cannabis, but you obviously don't light the apple on fire and consume and breathe in the fumes off the apple and the chemicals that are on that apple as well. Mm -hmm. But the way that we consume 
cannabis is we light those chemicals on fire and those chemicals also come into our bloodstream and our bodies as well. And that's a really poorly understood and I think very uh, serious public health risk is around sort of the role that these kinds of contaminants, pesticides, fungicides, uh, and mold have and sort of, I think, is a space that there needs a lot more regulatory and industry attention. Well, and I also think to wash my apples, I don't <laughs> think a lot of people are washing their <laughs> their flowers. Correct. Know? Yeah. I also wonder, Brian, if the fact that so many other states have legalized in some former fashion also pushes demand down. I've wondered about that as we sort of spread the legalization around. Does, do you think that has an effect too? We're not special anymore, you're saying. I know, Andrew. we're yeah. not. <laughs> I do this exercise in one of my classes where I uh, I teach a data analysis class. So I have my students pull down like total sales by county in Colorado from the Department of Revenue. They publish that data really helpfully. Uh, and then also divide that by the population. So we can get like the per capita sales by county of like how much people are consuming cannabis uh, dollars per person. And so you look at like the top counties, and it's Los Angeles County, which is I-25 running over into New Mexico. And it's like, that's definitely like, has the strong fingerprints of people buying cannabis there and leaving. Mm. Uh, but as New Mexico legalizes, as Oklahoma legalizes, you know, those kinds of pressures, you know, you're seeing that now play out that those dispensaries are closing down because there's not as many people engaged in that kind of tourism. Similarly, the high mountain counties like Summit County, Eagle County as well, we don't think of them as being border counties, but as like ski airport kinds of counties, their borders are San Francisco, Chicago, New York. And so you, those are also places where you saw extremely high per capita consumption. With the idea that people are not flying uh, under federal regulation with the drug and they're buying it when they get there. They're buying it when they get to Colorado uh, as tourists and maybe they leave with it or they don't. But uh, compared yeah. to say Boulder County or Denver County, the per capita consumption in these border counties uh, is, you know, five, 10 times higher than it is in a sort of a traditional front range county. Um, Dr. Brian, I wonder if we might end on the question of cannabis and exercise. So, you know, there is a, a long-held stereotype of, what, what did you call uh, uh, the strain? Into couch. Uh, into, into couch, into right. Couch. Yeah, into couch. <laughs> that cannabis use was, you know, alongside slovenliness and low energy and indeed couch potato-tude. Um, th th that really is not borne out in the research, is it? Not so far. The data suggest that at least in the states where we have asked the question, which I will caveat this by saying that a lot of the states in which we've asked the question about cannabis and exercise, they're states that people tend to be very active mm, <laughs> anyway. Mm -hmm. So Colorado, Oregon, Washington, California, Washington, D.C., these are places low that have, obesity rates. I'm exactly. Guessing. That have low obesity rates and pretty high rates of physical activity. Uh -huh. With that in mind, though, what we've seen is that cannabis users are actually more likely to be meeting exercise recommendations than non-users. They tend to use cannabis in conjunction with exercise in some form or fashion that's either using before exercise or using it after exercise for recovery purposes. We also do have larger epidemiological data, um, not collected by my lab, but um, where we see patterns such that cannabis users have lower rates of type 2 diabetes, better waist-to-hip ratio, better insulin function. We actually just replicated that finding um, in our lab amongst cannabis users in Colorado. So there's these interesting 
you might call it an oxymoron, right? Like on the one hand, cannabis is supposed to make you sit on the couch and eat Doritos. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, it seems to be connected to being active and in some ways more metabolically healthy. So we're collecting data right now, um, the study that I mentioned, to look at actually patterns of exercise and patterns of diet and eating healthy food and unhealthy food. So far, we're not seeing a whole lot of differences in terms of behavior in cannabis users versus non-users in Colorado. Right, again, because you can study that, right? Yes. Within a state, yes. you can study users versus non-users. Yes. Again, very, very healthy state overall. Uh-huh. But what we did see is that cannabis users have better insulin function, um, slightly better than the non-users. So there's probably something metabolic. We're thinking perhaps because of the anti-inflammatory effects of cannabis, we're actually um, analyzing those blood data now to try to understand it better. But there might not be as many behavioral differences as we once thought in either direction. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, the picture I'm getting, having heard both of you talk about your areas of research, is that you've entered a giant cave. It's pitch black, and you've got like one of those cat lasers to try to shine a light on the truth in this. Does it get daunting to do this work when there are so many variables, so many unanswered questions, and in a way so little latitude in terms of the kind of research you can conduct? Brian? So I'll think about this through the other hat that I wear, that I'm also the vice chair for the city of Boulder's Cannabis Licensing and Advisory Board. And so we are trying to make policy recommendations to our city of council about how we should deal with public health, public safety, youth use, and things like that. And we're always getting this question, like, what does the data say? What does like, the science say? What does the research say? And, and so in my kind of capacity, like, I can try my best to go out into like, the library and try to find those kinds of papers. And some of that research is starting to be done. And some we are starting to see some of these kinds of meta-analyses and systematic reviews to try to combine all this evidence together. But it's really in spite, like the fact that this research exists is in spite of the lack of federal funding. It's really researchers going out and trying to do this work and try to cobble together the resources to be able to sort of do this kind of research. You know, I think about the work that Dr. Bidwell does with the Canavan, like they're, they're going out and they're doing like really extraordinary kinds of methods to try to do this really essential public health research that can answer these kinds of questions, but like not having that federal funding to support it. Doing that um, while in trans, well, not in transit in a way, but not on property where you could be hamstrung. Right. So the the University of Colorado Boulder, we're not allowed to bring the plant on campus to do any sort of research. So we're required, like Dr. Bidwell, to go off campus to do this. Yeah. So a lot of our studies actually involve the van. So the study I mentioned with older adults, we drive the van to the older adult's house. They do a bunch of pre-assessments, go into their house, use their product, come back to the van. So it's um, it's a technology that allows us to do this work. But yeah, it's slow and cumbersome and not the way we'd love to do it. I actually find the situation both daunting and exhilarating because on the one hand, yes, there are a ton of limitations. I would love to not have to drive a van to people's houses to do my research. On the other hand, like I tell my students, the world is our oyster, right? Like there's Where do you want to start? Yeah, there's so many questions that we don't know the answer to. I mean, I have a student whose dissertation involves driving the van to people's houses and bringing them to the lab either after they've used cannabis or not and having them run on a treadmill so that we can see what happens when they're um, under the influence. Like that to me is just so exciting because who would have thought that that was even a question that we'd want to ask? So it's daunting but it's exciting at the same time. 
Right. I mean, you could be the Marie Curie or Jonas Salk of <laughs> cannabis. I mean, like that. The field. I hardly think so. The field is wide open, though. The field is wide open. Yes. Thank you both for being with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Angela Bryan is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder, where she and her team study the health effects of cannabis. Brian Keegan is an assistant professor of information science, also at CU. His research uses data to analyze both the chemical makeup of cannabis and the evolution of the industry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ellis Meredith grew up steeped in women's activism as the daughter of a well-known Montana suffragette. In Denver, she worked at the Rocky Mountain News, first as a proofreader, then as a political journalist. At a time when women couldn't vote, she advocated for women's rights in her column, Women's World. In 1893, Ellis Meredith met Susan B. Anthony and asked her help to get Colorado women the right to vote. If Colorado goes for a woman's suffrage, she said, you may count on a landslide in that direction throughout the West. Just a few months later, Colorado women did gain the right to vote. They used it to enact child labor laws, an eight-hour workday, and child abuse and negligence laws. Called the Susan B. Anthony of Colorado, Ellis Meredith went on to campaign for women's suffrage nationwide and in 1910 defeated seven men to become Denver's first female elected official, the city election commissioner. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Sheets and Giggles. Robots as companions, even caregivers? Yes, they're already in care settings. Here's Rebecca Romberg from CPR's audio innovations team. Say hello to an unusual guest who recently appeared at Aspen Ideas Health. Hello, I am Pepper. It's great to see you. I hope you are having a wonderful day. That voice belongs to Pepper, a humanoid robot. Pepper can recognize your facial expressions and basic emotions. Pepper can tell you a joke. A robot, a Roomba, and a Norwegian walk into a bar. Or even help you remember a special time in your life. Would you like to relive some of your memories from the past? Helping people with their memories is an important part of Pepper's job. Computer science professor Arshia Khan programs Pepper and other humanoid robots to work in nursing homes. Khan says that her robots could help address a growing problem in healthcare. Here's Khan. Every three seconds, somebody is diagnosed with dementia. It's really scary. So in 2019, across the world, we have 55 million people with dementia. By 2050, we are going to have 139 million across the globe. That's a lot of people. So this is a growing problem. We need to address it. Khan's work with robots is her way of rethinking how we care for the elderly at a time when the population is aging and nursing homes struggle to find workers. Khan brought a couple of her robots to the Aspen Ideas stage in June, and she gave the audience a preview of what the robots can do for people struggling with symptoms of dementia, like memory loss. The robots can lead patients in something called reminiscence therapy. So I'm going to do some demos over here. You have started reminiscent therapy for the resident. My tablet screen displays a bunch of your memories. Just say the name of any one of those and we will visit that. Graduation. You were such a great student. Remember the day of your graduation? 
It was such a memorable day. Your parents must be so proud of you. Using robots in nursing homes is pretty new territory. To make her robots successful, Khan designed what she calls an intelligent, dementia-friendly living space. In that space, the people the robots are helping don't need to know how to use technology. Khan's robots have sensors that allow them to react to what people are saying, doing, and even feeling. So when my robots react to something, they are actually reacting to data that they are gathering from these spatial sensors. They learn from the behavior of the person, what the person does during the day, and then make recommendations as the day goes by. I'll give you an example, like we have sensors in the chair. So from the sensors that are in the chair, we can figure out the mood of the person. We can read the emotion using the robot, and we can actually gauge how they are doing emotionally, physiologically at that moment. Before they could actually use these robots in nursing homes, Khan and her team had to make sure that residents would feel comfortable having them around. And that's kind of tricky. A big part of that is how the robots look. Take Pepper, for example. Pepper is about four feet tall and is sleek and shiny white with big cartoonish eyes. Pepper wasn't designed to look like a person. Pepper was designed to look like a fun, friendly, and kind of futuristic robot. Khan says if the robots didn't look that way, people might not accept them. The robots should not be very humanoid because if they're looking very human-like, they find it creepy. The more humanoid the robot looks, the more they are afraid. The other thing is when it's more human-like, the expectations rise, you know? So if it looks really human-like and doesn't act like a human, then people would reject it. Khan's team has worked with older adults to see what they want the robots to do. And they had a specific request. One of the requests that I got from the elderly what they wanted the robots to do was tell dirty jokes. So actually, we programmed them to tell dirty jokes. So, which one of you requested the dirty jokes? I can't believe you've gotten to this age without hearing one. I guess you were pretty sheltered. If you really want to hear dirty jokes, you should hang out with the nursing staff. We won't share one of the dirty jokes. But Pepper does have some more appropriate humor. I went into Starbucks the other day, and one of the baristas asked me if I wanted any coffee. Can you believe that? <laughs> me? I said, no, I don't need coffee. I'm already completely wired. Khan says robots could also help people in nursing homes live fuller lives by nudging them to do things they used to love. So, for example, let's say, you know, there is Resident X, and Resident X used to love to play chess. And now, you know, living in the nursing home doesn't get an opportunity and doesn't have the desire to actually go out and play chess with somebody. And so the robot would approach and say, hey, you know, I was playing with him from room 204, and he actually is really good at chess, and he beat me in chess. Can you believe that? How are 
are you at chess? I heard you used to play chess too. So that's like a gentle encouragement to do the things that they used to do. Different robots specialize in different activities. Pepper has a sidekick, a much smaller robot with little arms and legs that can move. That robot leads elderly-friendly exercises, like yoga. We are going to be in a comfortable seated position. Now keep your hands relaxed on your knees and slowly inhale and exhale like this. Khan says these robots aren't just there to help patients. They could also help provide human caregivers some much-needed relief. The robots can take on simple tasks, like reminding someone to take their medication and checking that they actually do it. And no matter how many times a robot has to do something, it will have infinite patience, even with the most repetitive parts of the job that family members might struggle with. So for instance, if there is a person who needs to wear an oxygen mask all the time, instead of the daughter sitting there and reminding the person, you know, put on, dad, please put on your mask, dad, please put on your mask. After like five times of reminders, the sixth time the tone is going to change, she's going to get a little frustrated. She's got other things she needs to be tending to that are more important to look after her dad. The robot can approach and say, hey, John, you took your mask off again. Could you please put it on? The tone will never change. A speech will never change. It will still remain the same. So let the robots do those kind of mundane, repetitive tasks so that the caregivers, instead of spending two hours of grumpy time with the resident, they will spend maybe an hour of quality time. Taking the simplest tasks off a healthcare worker's plate could make a big difference in an understaffed nursing home. Khan says these robots can't replace people. But she sees big potential for how these robots can help ease the workload for caregivers and allow people with dementia to live more independently. They're not going to replace the actual human touch, you know. We want to improve the quality of life for the people affected with dementia and also the elderly people. So if their quality of life is here, we want it to at least stay here, not go down, if not improve. What I'm hoping is over a period of time, the prices of the robots would drop and we would have every elderly person who would like to have a robot, a robot with them. As a result, we will be able to keep our elderly at home for a longer period of time, try to maintain their quality of life, delay admission into assisted living and nursing homes and ultimately reduce the costs of care. Dr. Arshia Khan spoke at Aspen Ideas Health in June. Khan is a computer science professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth. This year, a Minnesota company agreed to use Khan's robots at eight of its nursing homes. Robots began working at one of those nursing homes in July. They're telling jokes and helping residents recall their memories at a facility near the Twin Cities. Have a great day ahead. Goodbye. You can listen to Khan's full Aspen Ideas session and see her give a demonstration with her robots at aspenideas.org. CPR Audio Innovations producer Rebecca Romberg. 
Thanks as well to our colleague Emily Williams. You can hear more compelling speakers in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Colorado Matters is a podcast too, available everywhere. I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Claire Cleveland. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.